Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Institute for Government. It's great to see you all here today. Uh, my name's Hannah White. I'm Deputy Director here, and it's a great pleasure to uh, to welcome you all to this event on what the aid watchdog can tell us about how to spend public money well. So that's a fairly self-explanatory title, I think. But as we all know, spending of aid money is not an uncontroversial topic. Um, and we at the IFG think that this question about how government can ensure that money is spent well is a really, really important one. So we're really pleased to have this opportunity to discuss the role of ICI, how it fits, and, and what its uh, sort of utility is as a wider model, really, um, for how uh, government can think about uh, effectiveness of spending. And it's particularly interesting that we're talking about this in the context of the work that the Congress uh, Procedure Committee has been doing on whether there's a need for a wider budget committee that might perform a similar sort of role uh, across the whole of public spending. So, really delighted to have here today Thompson Bolton, who's the new Chief Commissioner of ICI, and she's going to talk about um, the, the recent um, synthesis review of ICI for the next four years and, and what, what, what holds and, and her views on the model. Um, and then, as I say, really delighted to have a great panel uh, to reflect on her comments um, and, and to talk about some of these issues. So, obviously, we have Matthew Wycroft, who's the Permanent Secretary of the FID, Paul Scully, who chairs the Parliamentary Subcommittee, which oversees ICI, which is, in itself is an interesting uh, model to have that subcommittee of a, of a Commons um, uh, committee to focus on this role. I'm delighted to have a chair of the, of, uh, the IDC. Um, and we have Martin Wheatley, who's a senior fellow here at IFG, and he's going to reflect a little bit on the wider uh, implications of the ICI. So, no more ado, I will uh, hand over to Tamsin to uh, take us through her thoughts. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I'm, I'm feeling absolutely delighted today. This is the best possible way we can start off phase three, I think. I've got the outgoing commissioners at the back. Do you mind sticking up your hands? identifying yourself so you're not hiding we want to hear from you and I've got the incoming I can see one I can, can I see the other one I have the incoming commissioners here as well so let me go back a bit so this is the beginning of the third commission let me take you back to the beginning of ICANN and explain how we came to be we were set up in 2011 and it was in the context of the legislation uh, committing the UK to provide 0.7 percent of its gross national income in aid the idea was that, and this was in the legislation, that there needed to be robust and independent scrutiny of the aid programme, ultimately to improve it. For those of you who are sort of governmentology nerds, it's a non-departmental public body, specifically an advisory one, sponsored by DFID. Uh, but we, our independence is very much guaranteed through our reporting line through the subcommittee to uh, the Select Committee on International Development. What do we actually do? Well, we produce evidence-based reports on UK aid and of all programmes, regardless of where they sit. On the back of that evidence, we make recommendations, uh, we communicate our findings and, very importantly, we follow up within the year to see whether the government has really responded to our work and that report also goes to the committee. So, as Hannah mentioned, we've just done a review looking back over the last four years. I've actually only been here for the last six months, of this, which is why it's important that the outgoing commissioners are here. But I have spent time on that review. And I think it's worth saying a, a few things about it. I think, first of all, 
at the high level, given the controversy, as Hannah mentioned, about how aid is spent, it's worth noting that out of those reviews that were scored, there were 24 scored reviews, two-thirds scored satisfactory or better. The remaining one-third we felt had positive elements, but improvements were needed for the aid to make a positive contribution overall. So that's the high-level performance assessment, if you like. But in terms of specifics, I think it's worth highlighting uh, at first some extremely positive contributions. Uh, on the whole, to so the, the SDGs as a whole, but I would particularly highlight contributions to the inequality goal, leave no one behind, as it's known, and in this context, the work on violence against women and girls and social protection, uh, which DFID has led. We've also seen positive examples of work across governments, such as in the global health threats like Ebola. We also, of course, found room for improvement. Uh, first of all, in DFID's case, uh, I would pick out ensuring attention to public services being sustainable, uh, not just looking exclusively at immediate delivery results, relationships uh, with civil society organisations, and I think some of you are here and you'll doubtless have your thoughts on those, and proper attention in the case of multilateral channels to their normative role, which is something that came out of our review of humanitarian reform. However, I'd say on, on the whole that the, 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 the larger uh, challenges came with other government departments. We found that the scaling up of aid that had happened beyond DFID had been done before the necessary capabilities were in place, before there was proper monitoring, evaluation, and learning. And we found in particular that there was uh, insufficient attention to doing no harm in conflict settings. Having said that, when we went back to follow up, uh, we found that improvements had happened. And this, this is very reassuring for our mission, ultimately, to approve, improve aid. So I think the strongest example, actually, is if we look back over the longest time, and that, that, the review that's had the longest impact was done in 2014 in phase one, and that was on how DFID learns, although that's, that's our view because we've heard a lot about it as we do our reviews in DFID, but uh, wait to hear whether Matthew agrees with that. But looking at more recent ones that were in this year's uh, report, which will be coming out soon, I, I would highlight disability. I think. We've seen a good response um, to, to some of the demanding recommendations we had there. What we've also seen, I think, in relation to um, the cross-government, uh, the non-DFID funds, is now proper attention to human rights risks, much better monitoring, evaluation and learning, and the introduction of coordination in relation to the research funds, all in response to our recommendations. So, looking ahead, taking on board the lessons from phase two, I think at this point, uh, I hope we find ourselves in a position of credibility with both the committee and our target departments. I wait to hear whether that's, that's what they feel. Uh, but I realize that to maintain that, uh, we need a constant and continuing focus on quality and rigor and independence. So we have to keep that, and, and I think there's been important developments in rigor and, and some innovations in phase two. But of course, we need to have some new directions at the start of phase three. And how we kicked that off is we went out in an online consultation as well as con consulting lots of stakeholders. Uh, and that has given us some important new directions. As in general, we feel we need to improve the salience of our reviews, live issues which are of the most importance to the public and to our key stakeholders. 
and we need to communicate more about what we find. I think ICA is still a well-kept secret. Uh, so I hope today is part of making sure that's no longer the case. So finally, looking forward, our plans are to, to expand our coverage of all aid spending departments. So we've kind of started with a bang there because we've look, we're looking in our first review how UK aid learns at all 18 departments. There was actually an additional department that appeared during the process of, of the review. <laughs> so that's a, that's a good kickoff, we feel, for making sure we know something about all of them. We're going to have an increased focus, as, as we were uh, taking our cue from the public consultation, on spending through <coughs> multilateral channel, channels. And thirdly, and by no means least, we want to ensure that the voices of the people who are actually meant to benefit from UK aid are heard through our reviews better than, than in the past and building on the best examples. So, so I hope that in itself will increase public trust. And I would argue that in this case where trust is reducing, we need more than ever independent, specialised scrutiny which improves aid. I think for us to be most effective, and today is a good opportunity to consider it, the work that ICAI has done, our evidence, should be fed in to the spending review or whatever allocation uh, there is in future uh, of aid. I think that would be the best way to get value out of ICAI. Thank you. So I think we'll kick off with Matthew. How does this feel from different point of view? What, is, what role does ICAI play? What does it, has it helped differed with? And what would your reflections be for ICAI as they to go forward into their next? Period. Thank you very much, Hannah uh, and the IG for inviting me along. Thank you, all of you, for, for coming, and, and great to hear Tamsin's thoughts um, at six months into her role as, uh, as head of this uh, really important uh, organisation, uh, and I look forward to sharing a panel with Paul and Martin. Um, so the short version of what I want to say is that um, of all the departments that I know, the Department of International Development is both the one that has the best track record at spending money in a value-for-money and impactful way, and the one that is under most scrutiny and oversight. Uh, and I think those two facts are related. Um, so I welcome uh, the oversight and scrutiny that comes from the ICAI and the rest of, of the architecture, which I'll set out in a sec, uh, and look forward to it, to it uh, continuing. Um, I think, if I may say so, that Richard and Tina, the outgoing uh, commissioners, have done a, done a sterling job and look forward to working with, with their successors um, uh, in the years ahead. So I mentioned that ICAI is just one part of the architecture. Uh, the other bits, um, which I think all help uh, with that scrutiny, that oversight, are, it's a bit, bit of a blizzard of acronyms, but I'll, I'll explain them the, the IDC, uh, the, uh, the NAO and the PAC, uh, and the DAC. Um, so uh, the International Development Committee um, is the select committee, and every department has a, has a select committee, but the International Development Committee is the one for the Department of International Development, and I think it's fair to say it has a very strong track record of, of, of having uh, members on it, uh, leading it, who, who really uh, know the subject uh, extremely well. Uh, the NAO, uh, the National Order Office and the PAC, the Public Accounts Committee, uh, scrutinise all public spending, including uh, the aid budget, but all of the, uh, all of the rest of, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, public spending as well. Uh, and in fact, later I had my debut uh, in this role in front of the Public Accounts Committee, uh, looking at a National Audit Office report, largely about how other government departments uh, spend their ODA, which I'm 
uh, looking forward to, I think. <laughs> um, uh, and then um, the DAC, the Development Assistance Committee, is the OECD committee that sits in Paris that sets the aid rules and works out whether any particular bit of spending counts uh, as within the aid rules or not. So if you put all that together, that's actually you know, significantly more oversight and scrutiny than I'd say, most other uh, bits of public spending get, uh, and that's a good thing. Um, why is it a good thing? Well, I think for three reasons. Um, first of all, the breadth of what we are seeking to do with the aid budget. Uh, I don't know if it was ever the case that, that, that there was a very narrow version of what we were seeking to do, but it's certainly not the case anymore. We are seeking to deliver the Sustainable Development Goals. The 17 of those and 169 targets, but they could be summarized with the five Ps of people, planet, prosperity, partnerships, all based on peace. So that's a very broad remit, and if anything, getting broader. There's also the scale of the spending. So successive governments and, and all main parties support the 0.7% commitment. It's now legislated for, so we anticipate that um, continuing indefinitely. So that is a proportion of our gross national income. So as long as our income goes up, that share of our income will also go up. So the amount of spending uh, will continue to increase, albeit at a much lower rate uh, than it was in the years where we, uh, where we got up to the 0.7%. Um, and then the third reason for the, for the necessity to have this oversight is the sensitivity of some of the issues. Uh, and you know, although the main parties all support uh, the 0.7% commitment, I think it's fair to say there are plenty of people uh, who, who vocally do not support that. Uh, and so through, uh, through other types of scrutiny, including the media, there is, uh, there is, a, there, there is a very high degree of, of uh, oversight over anything that counts as the, as the aid budget. And, and I warmly welcome that. I think when we look ahead, uh, we will see that the combination of um, the upcoming spending round, and we have to have, as a minimum, a, a, a one-year allocation for the next financial year uh, by November. Um, that plus Brexit plus uh, political changes all mean that all of those things are going to continue to be in the public eye. So we need uh, a, a strong, independent, expert, deeply expert uh, ICAI uh, to play its role in this architecture. Um, the, uh, the, the fun thing I wanted to say um, is that ICAI produces, I think, nine reports approximately uh, each year. There's a scoring system, sort of reds and ambers and greens, although in practice we seem to either to get an amber red, bad news, or an amber green, good news, not really sure what, about the rest of the scale. Um, but, but the important point I want to make was that if it's an amber red, you know, that is quite a significant alarm bell for me personally and for the department as a whole. And you wouldn't believe, well, actually probably some of you would believe, the amount of, sort of scurrying that goes around in order to respond to that and really understand what are the ICAI trying to say to us on this, why have we scored badly on this? Because if we thought we were doing badly, we would have changed it already. Right? And there are lots of examples of us working out for ourselves with our own oversight and scrutiny processes, you know, what isn't working and, and, and are stopping it. If we haven't, and we therefore get an amber red, that's a, that's a major, that's a big deal. Uh, but we also learn from amber greens. Uh, and so when we get something that, uh, as we did, I think, quite early on in our uh, education uh, and, 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 and women and girls work, you know, that is a, that is a very significant um, boost of confidence, which allows us to you know, spread, spread the word in a way that we otherwise wouldn't have done. So uh, I'm all for it, and I, I um, look forward to uh, having even more of it in the future. So Paul, as a, personally, as a, a, a former 
Beanie Clark on the International Rugby Committee. <laughs> when I started my career in Parliament, there was no such thing as ICAI and there was no such thing as a subcommittee looking at you know, being able to use that product. So it would be really interesting to hear your reflections on, on what difference that makes. Mm. Um, and, and as chair of that subcommittee, um, how you make use of ICAI's product and, and what, if anything, you think they need to do differently going forward. Sure, no, thank you very much, um, Hannah, and thanks very much for the IFG for hosting us today. Matthew, I thought you did brilliantly. I was, I always get to the edge of my seat when he said about the five P's. You, <laughs> yeah, you, did, you didn't hesitate on fourth or fifth at all. So that was, that was wonderful. So well done. Uh, no, look, when I, I joined the uh, uh, International Development Committee, AB chair by, by Stephen here, uh, in uh, I think about September 2016, and I wasn't uh, an, anywhere near an expert in international development. It was an area that interested me, and especially post-Brexit, uh, post-referendum the international nature of that committee, working through with the, the, the wider themes uh, of, uh, of the Foreign Office and uh, Department of International Trade and the newly formed then Department of International Trade really fascinated me. And when we got to the, um, to the, uh, the SNAP election, I remember I was really desperate to get back onto the International Development Committee, having been elected, because it took me that long, six months, to get through the, uh, the alphabet soup of all the jargon <laughs> and things like that. And I'd, I'd never heard of ICAI before we are coming into it. but. Uh, um, it's been fascinating to actually first serve as a member and then as a chairman to, because it does play a really important role. Uh, apart from possibly Stephen, because as chairman, the, the, the amount of time he invests in it, in, in chairing that committee, taking so much on board, the rest of the, the members, we, we, we do our best to, to, to get into the, the, the depths of what is a huge portfolio uh, around the world, global portfolio around the world, but we can't do everything. And so I always see ours as almost the layman scrutinising, whereas ICAI provides that professional impetus. They, they are the development ec economists, they are the academics, they are the auditors that can really come in and get down to, to, to brass tacks. So when we do our reviews, uh, the wider reviews, we tend to call for evidence, we'll uh, uh, have written evidence, we'll call people in front of us, but again, it's a limited amount of time, whereas ICAI can really uh, do far more visits, they can do the desktop research, uh, and that in itself is, um, is, is incredibly useful and incredibly uh, for, um, informative uh, as well for the rest of us. I know that um, when you look at uh, what that means for other departments, where the increasing amounts of ODA spend is, uh, is, is not with DFID, it sits with those other departments. And I know Tamsin's predecessor, Alison Evans, used to explain when she'd gone to one of those other departments how they felt they'd been eye-eyed. Mm. It, <laughs> it suddenly became a verb. Uh, uh, because they're just not used to uh, that sort of level of scrutiny. But it is an important level of scrutiny, not for, just for the reasons I've said. But Matthew touched on the, uh, uh, on the media, 0.7%. If you think about other uh, departments, Department of Education, Department of uh, Health, these kind of areas, pretty well, ev well every journalist uh, that has children will talk about, will know something about schools, they'll know about their own schools. Every journalist goes to uh, users, hospitals, GPs. Not every journalist, not every uh, broadcaster knows, uh, gets in depth about international development. So actually it takes a journalist or a uh, 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 broadcaster to have a particular interest uh, to want to go out and look at what's happening around the world, whether it's disaster relief, whether it's uh, uh, global poverty that we've been talking about, whether it's climate change, uh, whether it's uh, sexual violence, uh, and all of these kind of um, areas that are huge, but ultimately, when it comes down to UK media, can be quite niche. So mm -hmm. it's very important that we do focus on that. 
ICAI itself, uh, we've talked about, the, uh, Matthew mentioned about the red, amber, and amber, green. Funnily enough, uh, because we're quite a consensual committee, although we were, I think we're reasonably tough and, uh, uh, and firm on our questioning, uh, we do tend to come out with, uh, um, both on the IDC itself and on ICAI, uh, a good consensus uh, um, uh, of how to approach these. Um, and so one of the biggest discussions we always have is, do we stick with the red, amber, green, the traffic lights? And it comes down to as simple as that because we want to make it as accessible as we can for other people, as Tamsin was talking about, mm. communicating what we do, uh, having it as accessible for people to come in and get a, 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 that snapshot, mm. but it, it is complicated. So there is an argument to say, actually, is that too simplistic uh, for the reasons that Matthew said? Is it just red, amber, amber, green? Do you want to go into a 0 to 10 scale? Whatever, but it needs to be something that means something to Diffit so that they can pull out the learning from it but it also needs to be simple for people to, uh, that, that don't necessarily have that deeper understanding to be able to come and say, okay, fine, these are questions that maybe we need to look into further and, and scrutinize externally, um, and all of, which is, all of which is good. Um, it's interesting, just finally, to, to see what, where we go over the next few years, because the, uh, it's right that we actually get the balance between quantity and quality right, because uh, otherwise we can spread ourselves that little bit too thinly. Um, but there has been some really tough um, uh, ICAI reports, and I think actually it shows the difference between the relationship between ICAI and DFID and ICAI and other parts of government, that some of the toughest reports have been on the cross-government spending, particularly the funds, the Prosperity Fund, the Newton Fund, CSSF, and all these kind of areas that have actually uh, attracted the most, the most criticism. I think one of the things that I've done over, over my short tenure as chairman is to change the dynamic of the of our committee that that um, listens to the that reviews the report and listens to the evidence between ICAI and DFID. So instead of having some artificial uh, relationship where ICAI tells us everything that we've just read in the report and then DFID tells us why actually no we've, we've learned that bit but we're brilliant at this, uh, it actually by bringing them together in one hearing we have so much more of a dynamic discussion. And I, I think that learning really does come out of mm. that. Leave it at that. And so, Martin, as I said, you're, we're going to reflect a little bit on, on the wide lessons of this. Obviously, here at the IFG, we are very interested in how independent scrutiny can make um, government spending, public spending, more effective. Um, what do you think the, um, the lessons are we ought to be taking from ICAI as well? Well, indeed, so thank you, Hannah. I'm not going to add anything to my much more expert co-panellists on the issue of aid spending. I think though there are two concepts that come out of all those three remarks, and one can read on ICAI's excellent website and so on, which are on the one hand impact and value for money, and then scrutiny and accountability. Um, and as you said, Matthew, those, those, those two concepts are, are very much uh, related. Um, so I'll say a bit about each of those uh, in turn and where I think the UK generally is now sitting internationally in, in its approach to both of those. First of all, um, impact and value for money. Um, back in uh, heady days of autumn last year, when we thought there would be a spending review, a three-year spending review underway by now, um, how things change. Um, we published a report on the spending review, and one of the main things we said needed to change is 
uh, a much more focus on the results of spending, not just divvying money out uh, uh, and, and, and hoping for the best. Um, in that report, and there's an IFG publication called Performance Tracker, which looks at the relationship between spending and results as well, um, we've shown how um, planning in the 2015 spending review was all too often not based on sound assumptions about what value and impact you could get with a given sum of money. And the result, uh, if we look at, at, at prisons, social care, many other areas, um, is services in crisis uh, and uh, emergency uh, cash injections. Not good for services, not good for the Treasury. Of course, uh, a critique like this of, of, of the UK system is not new. And governments have uh, repeatedly tried to get to grips with it over the years. Um, I'm even old enough to uh, just about remember the Margaret Thatcher version of this called the Financial Management Initiative. But 1990s, we had the Citizens' Charter. Under New Labour, we had public service agreements and uh, Michael Barber's uh, powerful Central uh, Prime Minister's Delivery Unit. Um, and and, and uh, attempts uh, of this kind of come and gone um, and in particular, they, they rather waned after 2010 when the government and the Treasury were very focused and very necessarily focused on bringing down um, public spending. But there's now uh, acceptance by the Treasury and the Cabinet Office that something important got lost. Um, and the last couple of years ago, uh, it's, it's, it's not been at the forefront of, of political and public attention for obvious reasons, but... Uh, if, if, if you're, you're a nerdy follower of things like me, you'll see things going on like um, the promotion of single departmental plans. Um, the Treasury's been uh, developing something with help from Michael Barber called the Public Value Framework. Um, good thing that the issue has been spotted, um, but as I pointed out and rather disappointed of Carlton Gardens blog last week, <laughs> um, the, 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 the single departmental plans are not yet uh, cutting it, certainly not in the public versions that all of us are allowed to see. Secondly, scrutiny and accountability. Um, we've, we've said that uh, government's own systems for assuring value uh, and, and impact need to be complemented uh, by uh, accountability and scrutiny outside government, not least um, by parliament. Of course, one of parliament's fundamental historical roles is supply, and go, going with the authorisation of spending must be uh, a concern for how effectively the money is being spent. Um, and, and, and we've heard about that system working well, I think, in, in relation to one particular area of spending, but we don't have anything like those arrangements for public spending uh, more generally. And as already been, uh, uh, we've got the Commons uh, Procedure Committee looking at, the, at, at what we might do to address that across the system as a whole. Um, we were pleased to give evidence to that inquiry and we look forward to uh, their report, which I understand will be out very soon. So both elements of what I've been saying, um, uh, there's a risk, I think, of the UK falling seriously behind uh, international practice. Um, around the world, um, Canada and New, uh, and New South Wales are just two I've been looking at recently. Governments are working hard to get better at making sure spending actually achieves something and demonstrating that. Uh, not least driven by uh, uh, politicians, prime ministers and others who invest real time and personal energy into making that happen. 
Similarly, on parliamentary scrutiny, the um, OECD's evidence to the Procedure Committee inquiry um, said that the, the UK is behind uh, even other Westminster-style democracies now in the extent and quality of its um, parliamentary uh, budget oversight. Um, good example of how that can, how, what sort of improvements can be brought about very quickly. Just 18 months ago, um, uh, Ireland set up a new budget committee and a parliamentary budget office to support it. And I heard a couple of weeks ago about the, the really strong impact that committee is already making on the quality of government financial planning, not, not, not the policy content, which like in our system other committees look after, but the quality uh, of planning and impact. So um, we at the IFG say the time has definitely come to get serious about impact and value across the whole of spending and that external scrutiny uh, and parliamentary accountability have a, lot, a big part to play in that. So, one of the interesting things I think that has come out from a number of the, the comments is this, this question about owner spend now being channeled through increasingly to other departments, um, and the question of you know other problems now feeling like being ICAID. Um, obviously, ICAID has a role, uh, you know, as an independent body in, in scrutinising that spend. NEO has a role. Um, the NEOs recently said, though, that it doesn't feel it's necessarily clear within government who's taking responsibility for ensuring that spending effectiveness. You know, they can come in from the outside, I can comment, but who within government thinks it's their job to, to, to drive that? Matthew, do you have a, a view on whether it's clear or, or what the answer should be? I have a lot of views on that, yes. <laughs> um, so the, I think the starting point, and this may be a shock to some people, but I think it's important to set out that the Department of Development supports the idea of other parts of the British system spending a bit of the aid budget. That's an important starting point. The bit of the aid budget that the, total, that the rest of the system in total spends is only a quarter of the whole thing. So fully three quarters of the aid budget is spent by, uh, by my department. Um, now, the, and the precise proportions uh, will be one of the issues that will be negotiated and decided in the, in the next spending round. Um, whatever the proportions are, there needs to be clearly uh, an accounting officer in charge of each particular bit, uh, as well as a system for ensuring the coherence of the whole. Uh, on the first of those, there is absolute clarity. Uh, the accounting officer is the permanent secretary of the department doing the spending, and everyone knows in any bit of spending who the accounting officer is, and you know, that is, I think, one of the uh, strengths of our, of our system of uh, accountability from permanent secretaries to, to parliament. Um, and the second, uh, there, in other words, ensuring coherence of the whole, uh, there is a system, uh, and it's a, you know, there's a, a ministerial uh, committee, um, and then there is a sequential <coughs> version uh, of that committee. Um, the National Audit Office uh, report that you, that you mentioned is the very one that I'm about later today to be, to be talking, uh, giving evidence to the Public Accounts Committee on. Uh, and I suspect that there will be questions about whether that current system is strong enough to provide the necessary level of coherence. Um, and, and, and I will make, make the case that we are operating as best we can within the existing system, uh, but if there were to be uh, a, 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 an improvement in that system, 
that could be a good thing. Uh, that will only come, I think, in the, in the next spending round as part of that negotiation, because I think it's part and parcel of the negotiation um, about, about who spends what. So what do you think, at risk of asking you to preview your comments at the PAC, what is it about the system specifically that needs to be strengthened? Well, I think that we are operating at, at, as best we can within the existing system. Um, but, for, for instance, you know, other, other departments are, are free to decide, essentially, however they like, to spend their parts of the aid budget. Uh, there, are, there is an overarching aid strategy, and there are individual, if you like, sub-strategies for you know, particular parts of the world or for particular issues. Um, but um, you know, they, they can choose either to follow um, what I would consider the DFID best practice on how to do that, or not. Uh, that is their choice. Uh, whereas in the future, I think one could imagine a system that was a little bit clearer about this is the way that one does it if one is spending the aid budget. Okay. Does that sound like the right answer to you, Thompson? Well, I, I absolutely agree that we do, at the moment, really have a problem in terms of who is ultimately accountable for ensuring the oversight of all aid spending. So this, let me explain it. It, you know, it happens in a very practical way. So I mentioned that we're doing this review of how UK aid learns, and the poor review manager who is doing this review is certainly not happy when I decided to expand it to all departments, which I did because I thought we should start by introducing ourselves to, with a sort of soft eye before we really go for, go for the big one. Uh, but it's been, a, 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 I think, quite an agonising process for all of them, and one of the biggest challenges is who is actually going to provide the management response? Yeah, normally we know who we're talking to. Uh, we can see that you know, DFID is being sort of active and helpful, but they're also not feeling that it's clearly their responsibility, and it, it's, it's not clear otherwise. So I think it will be in the end up to the committee to decide who is summoned, but before then we do need an answer from someone. And the review process has been greatly delayed because of all the complications of uh, trying to work out how we run it. So we do see that, that practical issue, and I think we would... We would rather echo the concerns of the National Audit Office. Uh, there, there is a structure, there's the Ministerial Committee, there's a Senior Officials Group, uh, but that is not enough for anyone to get firmly to grips with what needs to be done in response to our findings. I'll just, bri I'll just briefly say that uh, I think it's important that whoever does it, when I talked about being eye-eyed, one of the reasons that uh, I think departments felt like that, because they didn't really understand what this small department was doing and What's it got to do with them? Uh, and if you have it, will be still 25% of, of a, a reasonable budget. So it's a, it's, a, it's a good amount still that's going out to these departments. So whatever structure that we do decide on, th these other departments do have to buy into that. They do have to accept that uh, this scrutiny is there. It's important and it's, and, and it's very relevant. So they do have the same robust uh, questioning and the same level of answers that DFID gives us. One more for me, and then I'm going to open it up to the floor, so please do have your questions ready. And if you're sitting next door, you'll be able to stick your head through the door and <laughs> in time-honoured fashion. Um, just a question again to Matthew and Paul, really. You, know, you have both um, seen um, government through, through different eyes and you know, in different roles as, as an MP and a, and a perm sec. Um, do you think, having experienced sort of the role that iCry plays, this is something that should be replicated in other departments. You know, do, does everybody need an ICI? My personal view on that is that I, I mean, I think every, everyone should ask themselves whether they need an ICI. Mm. 
everything is up, up to them to decide, and I don't know enough about their own particular circumstances, but I would have thought it's, as a minimum, worth having a look at. Uh, I think that the, uh, that, the, um, that the introduction of Aikai and, and, the, and the sort of history that, that, that Tamsin um, cantered us through does demonstrate that in the case of the Department of Development, it's been a, a wholly good thing, and it has really improved uh, the quality of what we do and how we do it and, and our ability to learn. Yeah, I think um, Matthew, the balance of Matthew's answer is right in terms of the fact that it should be up to them to decide. Uh, I think, as I said in my opening remarks, the fact is that um, most of the other um, government departments have enough external input anyway, proactive input. They don't have to call, whereas we often have to call for evidence and then have to make a second call because we're dealing with people right away across the world. Um, whereas, as, as I say, education you're not going to find it difficult to find a, te a teacher or two who might actually want to have a bit of input or a teaching body of these kind of groups. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> what's, your, what's your view? Well, um, I, the, the only thing I would throw into this is talking to permanent secretaries and other senior officials as part of our current work on the impact of spending. Um, that Some of the conversations have noted that the department doesn't really have... Uh, across the whole of its activities, um, a comprehensive, well-informed external view of what it's doing. People will mention that, for example, if there's a bit of their activity where there's a, a good inspectorate that's looking at what's going on, that generates a lot of worthwhile information, which is used in the way you described using um, ICAI's information, Matthew, but it, that's very partial. So um, I think there is an appetite for expert-informed scrutiny, but I would agree um, uh, if we look at a departmental level, um, just carbon copying ICAI is plainly not the right approach. It's, uh, it, it should be uh, uh, the, the departments themselves uh, and the Treasury should think about what is helpful and appropriate in relation to that department. I should say as well, actually, one thing that, having said that, ICAI does add than the external, uh, the other external scrutiny that we were just talking about, uh, is that... Um, because it regulates itself in terms of the, uh, alongside the committee, what it chooses to look at. And also, something that ICAI informed us that we now do as a wider committee is it, ha it comes back a year later. Mm -hmm. So, right, we do a review, it's not just left like that. Mm -hmm. So, actually, thinking about it, if you just did have external uh, um, reviews from, from practitioners around uh, ad hoc, then you may lose the, the learning uh, further down the line. That's a, that's a very good discipline, isn't it? I think it does come back to the perennial question with parliamentary committees about you know, how much has to be initiated and driven by members of those committees and their expertise and their knowledge and how much having that sort of external expert input is right and helpful or is inappropriate because that's people other than the, the MPs yeah. driving this did you have anything you wanted to add on this, or should I? No, I think we should open out. Open up for the question. So we have some waving lights. Oh, look at that. He's, Please, he's uh, keen to go. Yeah. Raise your hand if you're interested in asking a question. Can we stop with this lady down here? I'll take the three, and then we'll... Uh, Thanks. I'm um, Lucy Lake from um, CAMFED, Campaign for Female Education, and speaking as an organisation that has been ICAID um, on a number of occasions. Um, Tamsin, you mentioned that... ICAI was one of DFID's or the government's best-kept, well-kept secrets. And I would say that I think DFID has a number of well-kept secrets, and I think ICAI needs to be actually positioned out more globally 
as a model of best practice of accountability. And I think one way and one lens through which that could be done is in really picking up that issue of accountability. I mean, you mentioned about how ICAI is now doing more to bring through the voices of beneficiaries, those whom UK aid is intended to benefit. Um, and I think that there is an important opportunity there. It was really disappointing last week to see the coverage around um, UK aid being seen to be exaggerated in terms of the impact um, that is being had. And so I think there is an opportunity in redefining accountability and for ICAI to be zooming in on the kind of financial and impact data that does allow for us to drill down on what do we mean by accountability to those for whom the aid is intended to serve. Because with that kind of data, we can affect the kind of cost-effectiveness analysis that really does allow us to see, are we getting the most bang for the buck for those who need it most? And that's where I think ICAI really could be positioned as a model of best practice globally, and that we could be doing more in terms of using ICAI to hold others to account beyond the UK. So it's just a plug to say that I think there's a lot more that we could be doing um, in achieving the value of ICAI. I'm, I'm Billy James, I'm a chartered accountant, and I was recently in Zimbabwe. Uh, in countries where, which are run by highly skilled kleptocrats, where the local government knows where the, the local auditors live, do you not do an obvious audit test? You know what you've spent each year, you can value and you can count the cost of the bridges you've built, the dams you've built, and other tangible assets that you've financed. Do you then put the intangible balance under the microscope to find out whether it has been skimmed? Thank you. I'll take one more. Uh, one in the back. Sorry. Um, uh, my name is Christopher. I work for the Project for Modern Democracy, which is a think tank that's published a report a couple of years ago on the effectiveness of aid. And my question is, if, uh, so if Matthew Rycroft, you, um, you mentioned that DFID had the strongest track record of spending aid effectively of any department and is, has more transparency mechanisms in place than any other department, um, does that not mean that when, if we're spending a good quarter of our aid budget through other departments, surely that means that we're getting less transparency and less value for money? Yes, thank you. Well, thanks, uh, Lucy, I think it was from Hamfed, um, on, on ICA as a global model. We have actually had the, the French come to talk to us to see if they can set up something similar to ICAI. And there, there already are some other European examples, so that, although I don't think all of them replicate all, all of the, the features. Uh, on, on your point about the, the voices of those that UK aid is, is meant to help, this is something that I feel personally very strongly about, even though it makes my life a great deal more complicated and that of the team more complicated as we organise reviews. Um, so to give you examples of the new reviews we're doing uh, and how that works, then we are, for example, in relation to the Ghana portfolio review, getting the views of citizens and not just people who are directly beneficiaries, because we think that will provide a balance to all the other uh, data that, that we use. And in, in the case of the Prevention of Sexual Violence Review, which Paul alluded to, we're making sure that the voices of survivors are heard, and the ultimate aim of that is that programs themselves will be informed by those voices. So uh, we hope to facilitate that. 
But in terms of the sort of details of results, something that I hope to continue that my predecessor Alison started is what she called impact reviews or results reviews, which really interrogates the methodology uh, for the claims as to the results achieved. And that's something that I think we will do at least once a year as a, a, you know, as a focus of our review. So uh, just as I was arriving, um, there was a lively debate going on on Twitter between Diffid and ourselves uh, because we weren't happy that they'd used the right methodology for the number of lives saved uh, in the maternal health context, just to give you an idea. So I, I basically agree with that. And, I, and if you see our follow-up review, you'll see there's quite a lot of that which hopefully does allow for others to use our reports to hold government accountable. I, I'm not sure if I can, I can answer, I think it was Billy's question about um, beyond infrastructure and the intangible balance. I mean, uh, others from ICAI may know whether we specifically looked at Zimbabwe recently. I can certainly reassure you that we don't confine our, our scrutiny to infrastructure spending. Uh, but look very broadly across the piece. But uh, Matthew may be able to, to say more. Um, and on the, on the question about other government departments and value for money, I, th I think it's fair to say, but I, I would love my fellow commissioners who, who have seen this over the four years to, uh, to speak up on this, uh, that yes, you know, if you look just on average, there have been bigger questions about value for money because of what I explained, this sort of very quick scale up before the systems were in place. I mean, having, having said that, you know, we do also have some good examples, of good value for money, uh, using the expertise of the Department for Health and Social Care in relation to the global health threats is one example. And in relation to the International Climate Fund, where I think we were more positive about base than, than diffids uh, in, in the case of that one. So it's not a completely straightforward picture, I would say. Um, just going in reverse then, uh, Christopher, I think you, you, you know, you're right to have, that we want more transparency. That doesn't necessarily follow that it's not value for money, but, uh, but uh, it's only by uh, throwing sunlight on it that we'll, we'll find that out, that, that for sure. And I think um, hopefully if we can get the structures in place that we were talking about, we can, uh, um, I'm sure those departments will eventually welcome it, uh, shall we say. Billy, to answer your question uh, about, uh, uh, about corruption, um, don't know about Zimbabwe in particular, but obviously we stopped budget support some years ago to try and get past those kleptocratic governments. But nonetheless, as you say, any sense of skimming probably will be best um, uh, answered by Matthew or, or someone within the department. It was interesting though, when I was up in um, Scotland at the um, DFID office there, there was a specific department that tackles corruption. So interesting it's called, for those of you that um, are thick of it um, enthusiasts, it's called GOSAC, which sounds a little bit familiar, you might <laughs> yeah. remember. But also, um, uh, but Lucy, uh, you talked about the best kept secrets. And I think actually this is um, something I was talking about the media before. Um, it always worries me about the international development community, that they are always on the defensive about the 0.7%. It's something we all always must talk about, we must celebrate, and we must actually talk about what we are doing for, for, uh, for around the world to tackle global poverty, but also to actually help citizens here as a result of what we're doing, not just making them feel better, but talking about security, talking about immigration at source, talking about uh, uh, um, anti-drug resistant uh, diseases and these kind of things, um, that we have a good news story to tell about, about UK aid. So we can also get, always get, sometimes get on the defensive. And I worry that sometimes if we are there, therefore, throwing up accountability, 
some people may fear that that actually throws up the negative stories that, that certain, certain newspapers can pick up on. And, um, uh, but I don't think that should stop us from having that accountability, from actually making sure that we are seeing the best value for money as possible. Imagine it'd be good if you could pick that point up as well. Mm. If you're going to address those, because obviously part of the point of ICAI was to make the, you know, to, to, to push it, to, to analyse this question of whether, you know, 0.7% was the right answer, which was getting a lot of questioning. So do you yeah. think that's made an appreciable difference having that? Yeah. Panels, panels usually work best when there's a bit of tension between between the members, but actually I totally agree with what Tamsin just said, so sorry to disappoint you on that. I mean, I very much agree with what Tamsin was saying in answer to Lucy's question about best-kept secrets. I think that all of us have a, uh, have a responsibility, actually, to, to be even more out there, to, to just, to, uh, just to explain to people how, how their taxes are being spent uh, and, and what a strong track record we've got. And it's not perfect, and we're operating in very difficult environments. And as, as Christopher said, uh, sorry, as, as, uh, as Billy said, there is, the, there is a, uh, you know, there are very significant corruption risks in, in, in many of the countries that we're operating in. There's also, you know, very difficult security environment increasingly in our countries because there is an increasing correlation between people living in poverty and people living in conflict-affected states. Um, so it's very difficult to do this work, but we are absolutely determined to, to, to do it and absolutely to, to get out there with ICAI, with the ITC, with others uh, to tell the story. Um, and and we, we, we want to be globally leading. We want to, we want to be being influential, not just in our own country, but uh, over other donors uh, who we work very closely with um, and, and others in the sector, whether that's part of the private sector, uh, who are interested in this sort of yeah, impact investing uh, with, the, uh, with NGOs, charities, civil society organizations, with philanthropists, and with, with everyone else. Um, as others have said, I mean, there, is, there, is a, a, there is a significant risk of skimming, as, as Billy put it, of corruption in, in, in many parts of the world that DFID operates in, uh, and we have significant uh, procedures in place uh, to reduce uh, to a minimum uh, uh, those losses, and we go after every um, allegation of fraud uh, with a dedicated uh, team uh, very uh, assiduously. Uh, and we, we, we seek to design our programs from the beginning um, to, to, to allow us to have um, a, a, a very high degree of oversight, however the delivery of each program is, is, being, uh, is being done. Uh, and then finally, just to pick up the transparency aspect of Christopher's question. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that, that DFID scores so well on transparency, uh, with third out of all the donors in the world uh, on the last, um, the last uh, transparency index. Uh, and that's a great place to be. Obviously, first or second would be even better, but we will aspire to that next year. Um, but we are well ahead, if you like, of other bits of the, of the British system. Um, and we will therefore carry on doing what we're doing and, in, and to provide the tools to them so that they can use our approaches, um, if they so wish. Just a couple of quick points, uh, Hannah. First of all, on your point, Christopher, I, I think your, what you are saying, the point it makes to me is that um, uh, we, 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 we've got a department that's performing very strongly on transparency in one very particular area of public spending, but we don't have that to nearly the same extent elsewhere, even to the extent that government refuses to publish in full the single departmental plans that set out what, what departments are planning to do with the money. So um, we need more, more transparency across the system. 
your point, Lucy, about user voice, I think one of the arguments for independent evidence institutions is absolutely they can bring that kind of evidence to bear alongside others. And I know that um, when, before I started here, one of the things I was doing was uh, designing and managing a research program. And um, it was incredibly powerful to bring uh, qualitative research into users' experiences and opinions uh, alongside a lot of number crunching, looking at, at spending and other kinds of, of data. And the two kinds of analysis done well can support each other very strongly. The problem is, um, as I know from the hours we spent thinking about the methodology for the user voice, mm -hmm. that it's incredibly easy to do it incredibly badly and in ways that give you false readings. So um, I definitely agree that institutions of this, this kind uh, should be bringing user voice in and they can bring the professionalism that makes sure that user voice um, is interpreted in a reliable way. Thank you. Hello, I'm Jessica Toll. Um, I wanted to turn the lens on its head a little bit and perhaps ask Martin. Um, Tamsin mentioned good practice in the climate fund and health, but I wondered if there was anything from your spending review work or research that you'd learned from other government departments about impact and uh, value for money, which DFID uh, could perhaps learn from. Stuart Britton, Health Prom. Um, I want to ask why, uh, given that uh, there has been admission so far uh, from the panel that, uh, that government money goes astray in countries that do not have the institutions to manage it, uh, and I work in Afghanistan, where much money does go astray. I want to ask why uh, DFID does not instead allocate more funds uh, for spending through international NGOs where it quite rightly accounts for the spending of every pound. Instead, in Afghanistan, DFID allocates most of its money to the Afghanistan Reconstruction Trust Fund, which is managed by the World Bank, supposedly managed, but because the sums are huge and the government institutions are poor, much, much of it gets lost. Now, this, to my mind, is a needless loss of money. In this current UK aid direct funding round, uh, I know from Bond, the British Overseas Network for Development, uh, that it only expects to fund about 5% of the 1,100 applications. Now, at that rate, it is simply not worth the time of small NGOs to apply. It's a waste of time and money. Whereas money is being wasted much worse in fragile states that don't have institutions to manage it and account. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so um, 
I'm a journalist, and uh, I'm used to international aid being a source of some often quite ridiculous um, story and embarrassing stories to the government. Um, and I think I, I wanted to put forward a suggestion that um, international aid is, is quite unique as a department in that it doesn't regard the UK taxpayer as the customer. Um, I wonder if that change might have an effect on the way that money is spent. Because a lot of people outside of the Westminster bubble regard international aid as one of the clearest manifestations of the Westminster bubble. Um, and not everyone out in the wider world you know, is, is a bigot or uh, is against international aid. It, it, I think a, a stronger connection between uh, the department and wider uh, public opinion might just produce uh, a more refined set of priorities. Martin, do you want to start with a question about what... Can I, can I, sorry, can I, sorry, can I ask just where you're from? Which, which... Well, I'm, I'm a researcher now. I'm a, researcher. a journalist cool. by training, cool. but an uh, independent researcher. Cool. Thanks. Martin, um, what have we learned from other departments which differed might find useful to think about in terms of impact, if anything? Well, um, I, I was, I, I, I'm afraid I was rather struggling because actually the picture we have here is a much stronger and more systematic picture than I think I've come across anywhere else in the system. An example of that is um, interviewing a director of analysis who'd recently moved from one department to another. In his previous department, he had uh, developed a, a, a strong impact model for how the different bits of departmental activity led to, and spending led to, uh, outcomes. Moving to another department was surprised and disconcerted that that uh, department, better remain nameless, but a major public service department, domestic public service department, did not have any kind of analytical model for how the various activities and funding streams uh, that it presides over um, produce results. So I'm, I'm afraid that's a bit of an anti-model. I think uh, thinking um, I know that um, MHCLG, over the last couple of years, um, unsurprisingly in view of uh, mounting political concern about housing, put a lot of effort and energy into understanding uh, how different interventions lead to uh, results for the government in the housing, uh, housing market. And um, maybe no coincidence that housing supply was one of the issues where when we went around uh, talking to people more on the front line of public service delivery. They said they felt that the government had made most progress in the last couple of years in establishing a clear framework for turning public money into results in terms of um, brick being laid upon brick. Matthew, do you want to tackle this question of whether, you, whether Diffid thinks of the UK citizen as a, as a customer? Yes. I mean, I, 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 I know what's your name? David, I think, I think David's, David's question, in a way, is um, even better answer to the to the previous one than the one I tried to give. But I, mean, I, I very strongly believe, and let me repeat, that all of us um, in uh, in this world, including in Diffid, have a duty, have a responsibility to ex to, to to get out there uh, and explain to the UK taxpayer uh, what is happening with their taxes. So, in that sense, absolutely, we we we, we in the department see the UK taxpayer as our 
as our, as our customer. Um, we have uh, created, as, uh, as, as Stuart was saying, this aid match um, scheme, which, I mean, has some disbenefits, but the massive benefit that it has is that it connects British members of the public with the choice about how a bit of the aid budget gets spent. Uh, and we will, we, we, we're planning to carry on uh, doing that. Um, and, you know, when I, I, I mean, I'm trying to play my part in, in a small way getting out and about. I was in Belfast uh, a couple of weeks ago, for instance, not talking about Northern Ireland, but talking about international development with people who happen to be uh, in and from Northern Ireland, of, of which there are many uh, outstanding uh, NGOs. Uh, and, um, you know, that was a very heartening trip because you could see that there were many people um, a, a, a long way uh, from the uh, Westminster bubble, as you put it, who, who believe passionately uh, in in this work, uh, and who are very valued partners of ours. So I think you know, I think we've we've got it in terms of the need to, to do it, uh, and we are seeking to step up. Uh, and you know, I think you know, all of us can come together and try to do even more on that. Certainly hope so. Um, so I just briefly yes. ask the other question. I mean, I, the, I went on to Jessica's question, but I'll suffice to say that I think there are um, there there are lots of examples where DFID is working with others, uh, and the and the. In fact, it's pretty hard to think of an example where we are operating solely on our own. Um, I was in Mozambique last week, and you know the, the outstanding work that, that that we did, and I accept if it led it, but it wouldn't have been possible to do that cyclone response were it not for a strong FCO presence for Public Health England, and I'm sure lots of other people as well. So I think you know there are, there are there are countless examples where it's the combination of different organisations, including um, my department, but many others as well, that really uh, gives the UK our our unique offer. Um, and then finally, um, there were several aspects to Stuart's question, but I, th I think I just want to underline um, that strengthening institutions of countries like Afghanistan is itself a purpose of much of our aid spending. I accept that institutions are very weak in many parts of the world, uh, and we have a job to do, all of us, to help strengthen them. But if we only pursue one particular type of delivery model, we are unlikely to be making the maximum impact that we can at scale. And while there are, I, I think you're making the case for, 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 for doing even more with, with small NGOs uh, rather than with the big international ones and still less the big multilateral organizations. I mean, I think the World Bank uh, has, uh, has a, a, a very strong track record of providing uh, funding at scale, operating as DFID in some of the hardest parts of the world, and putting in place mechanisms to ensure that, um, that they get maximum value and maximum impact uh, for that money. And we are proud to partner with them in, in Afghanistan and, and many other parts of the world. We are seeking to do more with local NGOs, but that isn't always uh, the right answer, and it's very, very rarely the only answer. Um, I'd say to uh, Jessica, I can't answer your question about other um, departments, but I can say that actually, funny enough, from the scrutiny point of view, our clerks rotate um, regularly as well, so from, from one department to another. So we, we get a sense of shared learning. I'm, I'm hoping departments do as well uh, in that regard. Um, I think Matthew was right when talking about the fact that what Stuart was talking about, Afghanistan, the, uh, the, the need to, it's something that I've always looked at, the, the, and this, the committee has as well, the need to look at um, 
NGOs, but in particular the ability to for smaller NGOs to get involved in some of these countries uh, because they can deliver at lower cost and, and a greater localised need as well. The problem with that, of course, is that you, in order to have that ethos within the department, you probably need a bigger department. You need more staff within the department uh, to be able to manage those contracts, which then gets to David's point about the, uh, about the outside the Westminster bubble. I was door knocking just yesterday and had a chat on the after he talked to me about Brexit, he was saying, well, what about the international development budget then? And the problem you have when you're talking about this, it comes back to what I was saying about defending the budget, not just defending it, but promoting it, is charity begins at home is four simple words. It's a really good attack line, frankly. And so when you're trying to explain it from UK PLC, from a taxpayer's point of view, the fact that you can talk about, as I said, about security issues, uh, um, you can talk about immigration issues. When, when we had the political wrangle over Syria, for example, the argument was made that you can either bring 20,000 people over here or for the same cost, you can treat 800,000 people around the, in, in the camps around that area. You choose which 20,000 people aren't going to get that or 780,000 people aren't going to get that treatment. The fact that Oliver Cromwell died of malaria, so we have had malaria in this country, um, we don't want it back, and the more drug resistant it gets, it will come back. It's these kind of fundamental things that because people just look at charity begins at home, they don't bother poking them behind the headlines. You can get a, you can get a tabloid headline and just sort of like, okay, fine, well, that's because that child isn't getting that treatment, this child isn't getting that education. It's a really difficult attack line to defend, but defend it we must. Tandon, what do you think Ives' role is in this bigger one debate? Well, I, th I think that our role is fundamental in relation to taxpayers, and that's what we were set up for. And so I think we're an important part of that jigsaw. At the, at the same moment, as a decision to spend a lot more of taxpayers' money, it was obviously the moment to ensure that taxpayers could get information about what, what was happening. So I, I certainly think as far as... Uh, we're concerned this is a completely <coughs> crucial role and if we ever lose sight of it because we're having very specialist debates because there are a lot of experts in ICAI we're constantly reminded by Paul as you can hear that we need to have that consciousness <laughs> of, of what the, you know what it's going how it's going to go down uh, here back home uh, so that keeps our feet on the ground I, I, I just did also want to pick up the the debate on corruption stronger in institutions and different delivery models because that is something on which ICAI has, has had quite a bit to say over time and it is, a, it is a very difficult balance. I did actually briefly touch on it in relation to health. So the, the risks where you substitute delivery through government systems entirely with parallel systems is that you weaken them and then you may gain in terms of immediate health results but over the longer term you lose. <coughs> and so that is a, the dilemma, which is particularly acute in, in fragile states. Um, but I, I think it is arguable that you need, to, you need to do both. And if you are going a government route, I think civil society has a hugely important role beyond delivery, which is helping the people who are receiving the services to hold the providers to account and put the pressure on uh, in order to create that virtuous circle, which is the only way that services will ultimately improve. Okay, we've got five minutes left, so I'm just going to take two final questions. There's a gentleman at the back, Freddie. Bruce Lloyd, I wonder whether the panel would feel that our national security would actually increase over the longer term if the aid budget and the defence budget were reversed. <laughs> 
Uh, connected with that, I wonder if the there's an impact analysis on the Trident missile program. Um, kind of just off the back of that question, also um, what you said earlier, Matthew, about the future of the 0.7. Um, oh, sorry, Rory, from the SNP Central Research. Um, you seem quite sort of sure that the 0.7% commitment will be renewed in future, but we've kind of seen even now, and also in the public, and there's sort of significant political and public um, will not to do so, um, whether it's Pradi Patel as the new Secretary of State or Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Um, and could you perhaps speak a little bit about what you think of the future will be of, of DFID itself, whether it's rolled in, whether it's spending is sort of merged there, um, and of the 0.7% commitment? And I think it's an inter interesting wider question about sort of these sorts of spending targets and what impact they then have on the, the case of certain sorts of spending. Do you want to kick us off? Do you do that? Um, well, thanks for those final questions and for all of them. They've been a really, really great set of questions and, and an engaging. Um, audience. Um, so on the uh, on the defence budget and, and the aid budget, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to make the case for reversing them, but I, I do think that op them operating sort of together and in sync and in a fusion way uh, is, is the right way to think about this, so that the 2% of defence and 0.7% of, uh, of international development uh, adds up, if anything, to even more uh, than 2.7%. I think that's that would be a, that is, is a very one valuable way to think about it. Um, I think everything that, that we seek to do from the Department of Development is about joining up so that we can get win-wins, so that benefit both our, if you like, our department's uh, objectives as well as the objectives of, of, of others, including uh, the Ministry of Defence. Of course, Penny Mordaunt went from uh, being my Secretary of State to being Defence Secretary, so there's actually probably more joint work between um, DFID and the MOD than, than, than you might expect. Um, and then on the on the 0.7% and, and the future of the department, I mean, uh, there doesn't need to be a renewal of 0.7% because it's legislated for, so it's that set. And, and, and if anyone wanted to change it, they would have to muster a, a majority in the in the House of Commons uh, for that. And that majority, subject to pools, uh, greater insights does not exist. Um, so uh, it's 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 going to continue. As I said, um, you know, the, uh, the, the the main parties uh, continue to support it. Um, and it's our job to make the to make make that support um, uh, as, uh, as as grand as possible and to get maximum impact um, with with that. So it's a huge amount of money, um, fourteen billion pounds each year, uh, and that's a big responsibility. Uh, it's also a big part of our role in the world. Uh, and post Brexit, we need to be thinking about global Britain. We need to be thinking about. What do we stand for as a country? We need to think about what are we good at as a country? Uh, and it is very interesting that in the rest of the world, they see the UK and DFID as world leading on international development. Uh, it's only back here um, that's, that, that there is this sense of fragility and unself-confidence. Uh, but around the world, people see what we, the UK, are doing, uh, and, 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 they, and they see it making a, a very significant difference indeed. And I mean, finally, I mean, the, the government's policy um, uh, at the moment is to have a uh, separate, standalone, independent Department for International Development, and that's been the policy since 1997. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's one, I think, that adds to that standing that I was just talking about. If there were ever to be a change, I don't think there will be uh, imminently, but obviously we need to be ready for all scenarios. 
if, if, if there were to be a change, we would, uh, we would make, make that change happen. And if there isn't a change, we will crack on with the job at hand. Uh, yeah, um, in terms of the uh, defence budget, actually, it's interesting so when you get the synergies, as you say, especially around the British Overseas Territories, when we were arguing about um, whether um, ODA money could be used uh, in the disasters over there, because it was the obviously our um, uh, armed forces that were that were first, you know, often first on the scene uh, in that sort of disaster relief scenario in particular. In terms of the, oh, well, I've said quite about, a bit about the 0.7%, but I think what we do have to, I, I wouldn't want to change it, and as Matthew said, I don't see there being a majority to in Parliament to change it, so I don't think I would be surprised if anyone proposed that. What you can always do is look to make sure it's spent, as, as every Secretary of State said, the best way possible. What we've got to make sure that we, we don't ever do as a department is to shovel the money out the door, come to the end of the financial year. That's always the, 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 the worry about those sort of things. Um, so we've got to look at ways to uh, you know, make sure that's not happening now, make sure it doesn't happen in the future. In terms of the departments, um, you know, there's good reason I didn't go, I was one of the few Tory MPs not to go for leader, so, um, so, <laughs> so I, I don't have to make that decision. But, but nonetheless, I think we've got the balance about right now where we've got shared ministers. So the departments are discrete, but the ministers are shared so they, they can, they can, they've got that far closer relationship so that the, uh, uh, the, 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 the discussions can be closer. Uh, well, um, Bruce's point about defence and aid, I won't get into that specifically, but I think the question it raises for me is that often when we're thinking about questions of impact, they don't fit neatly into departmental boxes, and that would apply very much to a lot of uh, domestic issues, for example, the life chances of, uh, of, of children uh, in, in growing up in, in vulnerable households, lots of that you know, government wants to improve those life chances, but lots of different departments have to contribute to that. And I think the, the learning from that is that impact can't be considered neatly in departmental boxes. As we see in the ODA world and with ICAI, it's really important to be looking at the whole of what government does and with some consistency of systems and evidence to do that. Thank you. Thompson, the final word. Final word. The, the, just a couple of things from the, the, the ICAI position. In relation to the defence budget and, and, and the aid budget, of course, I don't have any general level comments. I would just take the opportunity to highlight we're doing our first review, which involves scrutinising MOD use of aid in the prevention of sexual violence uh, and sexual exploitation of abuse by peacekeepers. I've just come back from seeing some of the work being done in Nairobi, so look, look out for that. But to finish with the, the general point uh, in relation to machinery of government changes, I, I basically would echo what Martin says. From, from our perspective, wherever aid is spent, you're going to need proper scrutiny of that aid for all the reasons that Paul has set out and uh, David, the, the journalist, reminded us. It's, it's absolutely vital that taxpayers can have the reassurance and also those who, who ultimately are meant to benefit from the aid uh, can ensure that Voices are heard and that aid is improved. Great. Well, I think I'd like to thank ICAI for developing this event with us. I think it's been proven to be really interesting, so I hope you'll join me in thanking the panel. <laughs>